Good morning. What I want us to do this morning is we're going to look really deeply at a letter in the Bible. And I wanted to talk a little bit about letters as well. I don't know about you, but I really miss letters. I think that in our society today, emails and test messages have just taken the place of a good old-fashioned handwritten letter. Um, has anybody sent a letter in the last week or so in the mail? Handwritten letter. Has anybody sent? Oh, that's good. We got about 10, 15 people. I thought it was going the way of the cassette tape, but I think, I think we may hold on to it for a little bit. Letters are so powerful. Um, the words in letters, just the handwritten word, is so uh, important and powerful in our lives. When Carrie and I were dating, we, we wrote a lot of love letters to each other. Um, and they were important. We kept them in a little box. Um, I'm not going to share one of those with you this morning. <laughs> but I am going to share another letter that meant a lot to me in my life. Um, I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of background about it. Uh, so this was uh, a card sent to me with a letter inside it from my father on my 16th birthday. Dear Ginny, I can't believe that you are 16 years old already. I still remember the day you were born. When I saw you for the first time, I said you were the most beautiful baby I'd ever seen. Everyone told me that was because you were my daughter, that all fathers said that. But I really thought you were beautiful then, and I still think you are beautiful inside and out now. I'm so proud of you. Have a wonderful 16th birthday. I love you. Dad. So, I mean, that's a really sweet letter, right? And it, it, it's nice and it has great feelings in it. But it's so important to me, and I've kept it for almost 14 years, because um, let me tell you a little bit about my father first. <laughs> my father is a really great man. Uh, he, he is strong and um, responsible, and he loves his kids, but he was raised in a family that did not say, I love you. Um, he just, I don't think his, his parents ever told him they loved him, and he never told his siblings they loved, he loved them. So as he raised us, just never said, I love you. Um, I, I think it's, it's kind of hard for him. So this was the first time I'd ever seen it written, or I never heard it, but this is the first time I ever looked at something and said, my father loves me. It says, I love you on it. Um, it's strange to think that you could be 16 years old and not grasp that your father loved you but then I thought back and I realized he did love me he just never had said it in in words and so this was very very important to me um and so when I read it to you at first you probably thought that's really sweet what a nice letter but when I tell you how important it is in my life a little bit about my father and a little bit about me then it takes on a little deeper meaning um and you can understand how it's so important to me and I think that's what we have to do with letters. Um, we can read them, and we, we can see the meaning in them. But then if we study the person who wrote it, and we think about who received it, and what was their situation, uh, we can really understand all the more what it means. And the message becomes deeper um, and more personal. I, I wanted to read a couple of other letters to you. These letters are on a much grander scale than this letter that I read to you from my life. This little letter impacted my life, but these letters have impacted many, many people um, and have probably changed the course of the world. So I'm going to read uh, excerpts from two different letters, um, and then I'll tell you a little bit about who wrote them and when they were written. Christians range themselves with God in his suffering. That is what distinguishes them from the heathen. As Jesus asked in Gethsemane, could you not watch with me one hour? That is the exact opposite of what the religious man expects from God. 
Man is challenged to participate in the sufferings of God at the hands of a godless world. It is not some religious act that makes a Christian what he or she is, but participation in the suffering of God in the life of the world. They're powerful words, but they take on more meaning when you realize they were written um, July 18, 1944, uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, he was a man who lived during Nazi Germany. He was a pastor in Germany. And he was one of the first people to really recognize the evil um, that was in Hitler's regime. And he did something about it. He formed a seminary um, that was kind of an anti-Hitler movement. Um, and he had a church, and he kind of led the church against um, Hitler, which was not happening. Most of the churches were supporting the Hitler regime, so he stood up against that. Then um, he was offered the opportunity to come to America to do a tour um, for his writings. And he, he came, but then he decided to go back to Germany um, in 1943 and suffer with his fellow Germans there. And that was then that he was arrested, um, put into prison, and then in 1945 he was executed. Um, so the, this letter was written from prison um, as he was awaiting his execution. So when he talks about suffering um, with the people of God, he really did suffer with the people of God and for God. This next letter. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure, measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. That was written from um, Birmingham Jail, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And he was writing in response to a group of pastors who had written him and said um, the, the, what they were doing, the, the peaceful demonstrations that they were doing, were just not what should be done and that they needed to wait and things would change. So this group of pastors had written to Martin Luther King Jr., who himself was a pastor, and this was his response from prison, um, as he was in prison for, for peacefully uh, demonstrating against the, um, the evils of segregation and of unequal rights. So you can see that though the words of letters are so important, they, they, they grow deeper with their meaning, and they impact people more when you realize when they were written, who they were written by, who were they, were they written to. Um, it's really important to um, look at that. And so... 
as we study Colossians, a letter in the New Testament, um, I want us to really get into the situation that this letter was written in, who wrote it and who received it. And I think um, that the words will speak even more powerfully to us when we do that. And I'm not advocating or saying that the letter of Colossians is just a letter because it is scripture and the Holy Spirit speaks to us and we can pick it up and read a sentence and we can be, we can be impacted by the Holy Spirit. But I think as responsible Christians, we also, um, should go into the scripture and figure out what's going on there. What, what happened in the historical situation? And then we can, um, even be spoken to on a deeper level, um, from God. So, I wanted us to just kind of figure out how should we read a letter. Um, And the title of my sermon is How to Read a Letter from Prison. Um, A letter from prison is a little different than a regular letter. Like the two that I just uh, read to you, they are a little different because of the situation of the author. Um, They're more powerful. uh, They are more urgent. There's a sense of urgency in them. um, And I think they speak more honestly to difficult situations um, because the person who's writing it is in a difficult situation um, and is focused and is is very um, committed to getting the message out. So I think a letter from prison is even more um, impacting than some uh, other letter. So what we're going to look at today is three things. We're going to look at the author of Colossians. We're going to look at the recipients, the people who received that letter. And then we're going to look at the message. And I think that you can take this um, form and use it in any letter that Paul's written or any letter in the New Testament um, to kind of get in a deeper level of what's going on in the situation um, at the time. So first, I want to talk about the author um, who wrote it, and that was Paul. Uh, We actually know... A fair deal amount about a fair amount about Paul, not as much as we could have if there was a history book written about him, because there's not a history book written about him. Um, but we learn things about Paul from Paul's own writings. Uh, we learn things about Paul from the Book of Acts, uh, which was written partly about Paul. Um, so this is what we know about Paul as he writes this letter to the Colossians. First, he is a pastor, um, and he's in prison. Though Paul um, was known as a great missionary, and he was a great missionary, here we see him more as a pastor. Um, As we read Colossians, we see him caring for his churches, redirecting them, encouraging them. Um, And I think even more so because he's in prison. Um, And so he he feels like he's not there, so he needs to be able to um, pastor this church, and the best way he knows how is to write a letter um, and send it to them. Second... He, we can tell that he's worked through the pain of being imprisoned. Um, we don't know how long he was in prison. We, we think he was in prison for several years and probably more than once. Um, but he's, at this point, he's worked through the, that pain um, and the, whatever, I don't know what the conditions were, but the conditions of, of being imprisoned. And he's come to the point where he can make good out of his situation. Um, as we read in Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So he's come to the point where he realizes, okay, I could be out there traveling and planting more churches and getting the word of God out there, but I can do something here. And I can rejoice in my suffering here because I can make a difference in people's life. And that's, um, I think, one reason he has this letter ministry while he's in prison. Third, about Paul. The, because the, his freedom has been taken away and the distractions of everyday life have been taken away, um, 
He is focused, really, on what is the most important thing. I mean, when you come, when you're in prison, you're probably thinking about the end of your life um, because he didn't know how much longer he was going to live. And everything that doesn't matter just fades away. And so he's focused on the message of Christ, what Christ did, who Christ is, and getting that message to people. And so this is why I think he writes these letters. Well, though we know uh, a pretty good deal about Paul... We don't know a lot about the church at, at Colossae. That was the church he was writing to in Colossians. Um, everything that we know about these people, probably we have to deduce from this letter. Um, we do know Colossae was a city, and it was a fairly important city because it was on a traveling route. But there was another uh, street, that was, a road that was built that kind of more people started to travel on. So Colossae started to um, lose people, and it was actually destroyed at the end of the first century and never rebuilt. So apparently uh, it had lost some of its important cause they, importance because they never rebuilt it. Um, but that's um, a lot of what we know about Col- Colossae. So what we can do to find out who these people were, who this church was, is to look inside the letter. And so I'm going to encourage you, if you have a Bible, or if you would like to take your pew Bible, um, to open it and turn to Colossians. Because I'm going to be going through, kind of jumping around inside there, and I want you to follow with me if you can. If not, you can just listen. So, we need to figure out who the Colossians were and what was going on in their lives in the church. First, we can deduce from this letter that the church was being led astray. Um, a lot of people will call what's, what's going on in the Colossian church the Colossian heresy. That's what scholars call it. Or the Colossians philosophy. Now, nowhere in this letter does it actually state what is actually being taught. But um, by reading, we can find out that something is going on in the church. Someone is teaching something that is not the gospel. Someone is teaching something against really what what had been taught already, um, most likely by the person that founded the church, Epaphras. So there's some kind of heresy going on here. And if we look through, we can find some of the elements of this um, wrong teaching that was affecting the people here in in Colossae. Um, In 2.4... I tell you this, and this is Paul talking to them, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So that's a clue that whoever is teaching this heresy is using some kind of philosophy or wisdom, something that appeals to, to, their, um, to their intellect and trying to um, convince them of something. Also, in 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So we can see that this teaching is, has something to do with philosophy, um, human reasoning, um, and it's kind of taking away from the message about Christ. Also, if we turn to 2.16, Paul says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Here we can see that there's some kind of teaching going on that, that has to do with Judaism, with Jewish people, um, because we know that the Jews celebrated religious festivals um, and they kept the Sabbath holy. But they were emphasizing keeping these things holy and going to the religious festivals and eating certain things and drinking certain things 
over belief in Christ. They were saying this is more important um, than what you believe about Christ or what's you know what's going on in the church. You you must follow these. So whatever the tradition, the teaching that was going on, it was emphasizing Jewish tradition over Christ. So so far we we can tell it's emphasizing human wisdom. The teaching is emphasizing human wisdom over Christ and Jewish traditions over Christ. In two eighteen. Paul says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such people also go into great detail about what they have seen, and their unspiritual minds puff them up with idle notions. Now that is a very strange verse. (laughs) And a lot of people have said a lot of things about what it means to worship angels. Um, But what we think it's talking about is there was um, a group of religions pagan religions um, that were very popular at this time called the mystery religions and basically what they did is they told people there's this knowledge this mystery that you cannot attain unless you go through these certain steps Um, come to this temple do certain things to your body you'll starve yourself or eat a certain thing and then do all these things that we tell you and then when you come in we will initiate you into our temple and you will be able to learn the mystery so this happened with lots of different cults Um, so this mystery religion was pretty popular in the time and here Paul is telling them listen don't listen to people when they say they go into great detail about all these mysteries that they know or they have all this knowledge and it it puffs them up Um, that's really what the mystery religions teach so this teaching that's going around not only having uh, emphasis on human wisdom and having emphasis on Jewish traditions, it's emphasizing this mystery religion aspect. Lastly, in verse 116, chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, and this is in the hymn that we sang earlier, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Here, Paul is emphasizing Christ's supremacy and Christ being first above all other things. So we really think that there's some kind of power or authority um, that comes along with this teaching um, that is, is claiming to be somehow higher or more powerful than Christ. Um, and so here Paul sets up Christ and is trying to say, focus on Christ, there are no other powers or authorities that are more uh, important or more powerful than Christ. So, we've learned then that this Colossians teaching that's going on has kind of strange elements to it. Human wisdom, Jewish tradition, mystery religions, and there's some kind of power or authority uh, that they've been placing above Christ. Um, so that now we kind of know, as this church is being led astray, there's, there's something going on. Someone's teaching something that's a little fishy. So, the second thing we can learn about the church is what's going on in the church is that the church is not living for Christ. And we can see this by all the things that Paul says to them. In chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. So here he is reminding them of who they were, of their old lives. And I think that if he's reminding them of their old lives, most likely they've slipped into their old lives. He wants to remind them, look at what you were, um, not what you are. And chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 
In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your sinful nature was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So here Paul is basically chastising them for keeping you know, their old lives. Like, look, this is what you were. This is what Christ has done for you. So he's looking forward, say, look at what you are and you should be, um, not what you were, and don't stay in what you were. Also, in chapter 3, verse 3, this is a great image. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So he's, he's focusing them on Christ's death and their death with Christ so that they can realize that they are not their old selves and that something, there's something beyond what they are doing right now that they should be doing. Um, and so we see that with the recipients, they are a church that is being led astray by some false teaching, and they are also not living their lives for Christ as transformed people. So as we have talked about the author and we've talked about who received the letter we then can talk about what is the message that Paul has. In the next four or five weeks, uh, Pastor Steve's going to be preaching out of Colossians. So what I'm doing is kind of just laying an introduction, a foundation for understanding Colossians. Um, so I want to just look at the main message that Paul gives to the people in Colossians. First, Paul answers the heresy, the false teaching um, that is going, along, going around in the church. And he says, by answering this, Christ is supreme, that his, his main message. And that's what he starts off with in chapter 1. Um, the little hymn that we sang earlier is part of chapter 1. And we don't know if Paul wrote it and then it was sung in the church or if it was a hymn that was sung and then Paul took those words and incorporated them into his letter. We don't know that. But we do know that the words were so important and so powerful in the life of the church that this was something that was sung and used in worship. So in the, in the first chapter, basically uh, verse 15 through 20, Paul iterates to them, Christ is supreme. He says he is the beginning of all things. He is the first thing of creation. And the reason that he's doing this, he has to answer that teaching that somehow says there's something that is more powerful or more important or that comes before Christ. And he answers that with no there is nothing that's more powerful or more important or that came before Christ. Christ is the beginning of all things. Also, in this hymn, he talks about Christ holding all things together. He does this. He paints Jesus as this uniter um, because he wants them to know that Christ is bigger than any of the divisions that you might have. Because most likely, when a false teaching was being taught in a church, there were groups. There were people following one teaching, and there were people following another teaching, and they were probably arguing. And he wants them to know that we can get past this false teaching and this division um, because Christ is the one that unites and holds all things together. Also here, he talks about Christ as being more powerful than all the authorities and powers. He, he paints Christ as a conqueror, that controls all the authorities. I mean, to me, it feels like there's something that the people in, Col in Colossae are afraid of, 
that something there's some kind of fear um, of some power or authority that can that could do something bad to them. Um, and so they're worried about this, and they want to follow this power or authority. Um, and here Paul is saying, there is no power that is more powerful than what you have in your life, and that's Christ. Also, Paul's answer to this heresy is that Jesus has reconciled us to God and taken us from our lives of sin to our lives as beloved children of God. So he paints Jesus as Savior. He reiterates to them, this is the Savior. There's no one else or no other power or no other cult or no other religion that has saved you from your sins. Only Christ did that. And it was only accomplished through his death. So Paul's answer, the first message that he has is Christ is supreme. There is no other teaching that you can learn that will elevate you higher or give you some higher knowledge. Christ is it and is all that you need. Then Paul answers the um, other problem that's going on in in the Colossian church. The problem of not living for Christ. And his answer to this is powerful. It's in chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He says the answer to living untransformed lives is, you have been raised. You have already been raised with Christ. Christ died and he rose just like you died to your life. And you are raised with Christ. You are no longer the person that you were before. You are no longer in the situation that you were before. You should not struggle with the things that you've struggled before because you have the answer and you have a new life. So his answer was you have been raised. Um, And that's kind of a mental thing, I think. He's encouraging them to think about that. But then he works through practical things in this this book uh, to kind of show them how you can live transformed lives. He encourages them that the reconciling work of Christ has already been done. Let's read in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the statement of indebtedness with its particulars that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now some of the language in this is not completely familiar to us. When it says that um, Christ canceled the statement of of indebtedness, back then, um, the way they kept track of debts, they had actual paper, or maybe it was tablet or papyrus, and it was written on there, said, you know, this is the debt. And you kept that paper. It could not be destroyed until you paid your debt. And it, it, in your whole life, you could have this debt against you until you paid it. So here he's saying that list, that debt that you owed, all the sins that you have done, who you are, what, have you, what is going on in your life, this has all been written down, but it's canceled in what Christ did on the cross. And it's really a great image. said, Christ has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I think we've done that even before in this church. We've had a cross up here, and we've written our sins on them, and we've gone and nailed it to the cross. Yeah, we didn't just invent that image. Actually, Paul invented it. Um, And it's so beautiful to know that 
our sins and the things that we've done and make it, that made us who we were before Christ are nailed to the cross. And they're not coming off. And they're not going to come back into our lives. And so Paul is emphasizing this to them because they aren't living like they've been forgiven. They're living like they need to do something to achieve something greater, to learn this mystery, or to become a better person. And then in the meantime, they're living lives that aren't glorifying to God. Also, in response to their untransformed lives, Paul exhorts them to live as raised up people, people who have been raised with Christ. Beloved people, he uses these great words, holy people, blameless people. He emphasizes this to show them that they can be holy. And he wants them to to think on it in their hearts, in their minds, and he also wants them to act on it. In 123, he says, regulations, he's talking about the regulations um, of the false teaching, indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, false humility, and the harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. So what they've been doing is is doing all these things like they've been uh, maybe starving themselves or doing self-abasement to their body to try to achieve something higher. And, and Paul is saying, you don't have to achieve something higher. You are something higher already. You are holy and blameless in Christ's sight. And he wants them to be secure in their, in their faith. He says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope that is held up in the gospel. And that's what he says is going to help them to live lives. They have to be secure in their faith and not waver according to these, these false teaching that's going on. He also tells them they must have action. They can't just think or believe the right things, which is important, but they also have to act on the right things. In 3, 1 through 2, he tells them to seek things above. We read that earlier. And also, to live as God's chosen ones in 3, 12 through 16. I want us to go ahead and read. Could you, if you could go to chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Here is where Paul really gives them the practical knowledge of what to do to live transformed lives. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And I think if you were to take this whole book and give it to someone in one sentence and say, this is what it means, I really think this is what Paul is saying to them. You know, all the things that is going on in their churches, he tells them first, Focus on Christ because Christ is supreme. But then this is the practical application of it all. You have to seek the things above and live as who you are, God's chosen people. Though it might seem that we're eavesdropping on a conversation that is not intended for us, that Paul is writing to the Colossian church and things are going on in their lives and, you know, where are we in this? Um... I assure you that this is not just a letter to the Colossians. It's a letter to us. Don't we face the same struggles as the Colossians? Aren't there elements in our lives that edge out the supremacy of Christ? Aren't we led astray by philosophies 
and ideas that undermine Christ's importance and power in our lives. Haven't we placed money or success or education or vocation or relationships or entertainment or pleasure above Christ in our lives? That was what was going on in the Colossian church, and I think it goes on today as well. Don't we also, like the Colossians, tend to live as though our salvation and our reconciliation to God had never happened? Don't we slip into the old patterns and behaviors of this world like lust and greed and wrath and slander and lying? Don't we often forget that our sins have been nailed to the cross already and they should no longer master us? Don't we find it hard to live as God's chosen ones, as holy and beloved people? Don't we find it hard to clothe ourselves every day with compassion and kindness, humility and patience? And don't we live as though we belong to this world rather than Christ's kingdom? Shouldn't we seek the things above just as the Colossians were told to do. We're not so far away from these people who lived, you know, in the, in the first century. Because the same things that are going on in their lives, though different teachings and different problems, um, we still face the same problem of not putting Christ central in our lives. Not giving Christ the place of supremacy in our lives. And living our lives as though we were not already reconciled as though we were not the beloved of God. As we enter into a time of preparation for communion, I ask that we meditate together on what the message this letter from prison has for us. When we've looked at the author, we've looked at who received it, and we've looked at the message that Paul gave to the church. But what is the message for us? Communion is not only a time to remember who Christ is and what Christ has done on the cross. It is a time for us to remember how Christ has changed us. The cup is not only a reminder that Christ died. It is a reminder that we died with Christ. The bread does not just represent Christ's body broken and raised. It symbolizes our old bodies buried and our new bodies risen to live in Christ's kingdom on earth. I want to guide our silent prayers. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a time of silent reflection. When our prayers are through, we're going to sing the words from the hymn that's in chapter 1 of Colossians, all about Christ's supremacy. So I'm going to ask the servers for communion to come up as we enter to a time of prayer. I'm going to pray first and then give us several moments of silence, and I hope that you will reflect on what God has to say to you through the message of this letter. Lord God, we confess to you this morning that we live as though Christ had never died, as though Christ were never raised, as though we were never raised with Christ. I pray, Lord, as we take this bread and cup, that it reminds us of what you have done. 
that you nailed our debts to the cross. And that by raising from the dead, we don't have to bear them anymore. Lord God, thank you for Christ. Thank you that he is supreme and he is more powerful than any power that will come against us. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Let us enter into a time of silent reflection.